Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. I'm Allie. And we are recording in three separate locations over the magic of the internet. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. And we were just talking about how we need this conversation and movies to distract us from the world outside. So maybe we should just jump right into it and talk about movies. What have y'all been watching lately? Well, I have actually watched quite a bit since the last time we spoke. And there were so many that I decided to break them down into four categories. Uh, the first category <laughs> is do not recommend because bad. The second category is do not recommend because boring. And then we have recommendations, not drop what you're doing recommendations, but recommendations. And then a couple of big yeses. So my first does not recommend because bad is the movie Beastly which was an adaptation of a novel that came out in 2000. Oh, the adaptation came out in 2011 starring Alex Pettifer and Vanessa Hudgens, as well as Mary-Kate Olsen as a witch who curses Alex Pettifer. It's Beauty and the Beast. Like, I mean, there's not really, you don't need me to tell you the whole story of Beauty and the Beast. It's just Beauty and the Beast. I really only cared about it because Jenny Nicholson did a video about it some time back, and it's one of her most hilarious ones. I was intrigued. I saw that it was on Tubi, and I gave it a shot. I'm going to give that one a do not recommend. I also watched House of the Witch, which is a fairly recent haunted house film that is currently streaming on Netflix. came out in 2017. Um, I'm going to say I don't recommend that one as well. Some time ago, we talked about how I love to watch just like haunted house and possession movies, and they really are... Like, calling them a dime a dozen really overvalues a dime. You know, like, there's just so many, <laughs> and so many of them are so bad. House of the Witch is no different. I'm going to say, go ahead and give both of those a hard pass. Uh, as far as what I re- saw, but don't recommend just because I didn't think it was that interesting, I saw a film called The Eagle, uh, starring Channing Tatum and Jamie Bell that came out in 2011 it's a historical drama about Channing Tatum who is like the uh, a Roman legionnaire whose father was also a legionnaire who went into unconquered Britain and never returned and now adult Channing Tatum wants to retrieve the eagle standard that the Roman legion that went into unconquered Britain lost there came out in 2011 which is you know, several years after Gladiator, but is kind of in that same vein. Like it's something that seems like it was created to kind of cash in on sort of the sword and sandal epic revival that came very briefly in the wake of Gladiator. It's not bad. And at points it's actually quite interesting, but I can't give it a big recommendation. You know, maybe if it's on cable and you're like somewhere where you don't have access to the internet, uh, give that one a shot. I also saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Oh, I saw that. What did you think of that one? Well, okay, a lot of lead up to what its actual like core idea is. Uh, like so much like franchise storytelling stuff to like justify getting to that place. But the actual like haunted mansion full of dinosaurs segment, kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, when I saw Jurassic World, like the first of the soft reboot films, in theaters i remember being not very impressed with it because i wanted 
what I wanted in that moment was something to make me feel like Jurassic Park did the first time I saw it, even the second, third, and fourth times, like some kind of awe and some kind of majesty. And Jurassic World did not have that for me at all. And once I let go of that desire, I enjoyed it more, but I still didn't think it was great. But at least what that one had that Jurassic Park has is like indiscriminate destruction. So much of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is like bad people getting their just desserts. Like the dinosaurs only seem to chomp on like soldiers who were complicit (laughs) in their like capture. You know, the monsters are too vigilante like. It gives them too much. The monsters, the, the sauropods, they're too aware of like human morality. And I don't just, I was like, oh, I kind of just am over this, I guess. It really is like a haunted house movie. It's like ghosts punishing people for like things they've done, but the, they've just been like plugged in uh, and replaced by dinosaurs. <laughs> it's kind of a strange like mash them up of, of genre tropes. I don't think it's particularly great, but I remember once it gets to that part, like where they're actually set loose in like that old dark house setting. I don't know. It's fine. Uh, Chris Pratt and um, Bryce Dallas Howard broke up because he never let her drive. What an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Are we supposed to like him? Pretty big red flag there. Yeah. And I mean, he's like, you broke up with, or we broke up because you didn't want to live in my van. Which, uh, yeah, <laughs> who would? Yeah. But she's even like, I would live in it, you just wouldn't let me drive. Which, wow, what an asshole. <laughs> Her standards need to be raised. <laughs> I I also saw, and this kind of verges on sort of the borderline between these two, I saw The Core with uh, Hilary Swank. You know The Core, it came out in 2003. Gotta dig to the center of the earth right? yeah 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 you gotta go, you gotta go nuke the center of the planet to get the core spinning again i remember when it came out i was in high school and it was very much in that era of like you know the internet being full of like armchair scientists who were like oh this is this would never happen this is so unrealistic but back in 2003 that was the most annoying that people could be on the internet they weren't using it to like start white nationalism and and try to convince everyone the planet's a fucking disc. So I actually kind of miss those days almost. And the core, the core is a movie that's very much of that era. Sure, why not? We got to dig down and, and nuke the, the planet's core. Got to nuke something. <laughs> got to nuke something. I also saw Dead Con. And I guess it was produced in 2019. And it sort of takes place at a... A similar to, but legally distinct from VidCon, which is where, like, you know, uh, YouTube celebrities and influencers go and have, like, a big convention where lots of young people go and attend panels and, and all of that. But in this case, the hotel that the convention is being held at has a haunted room that an influencer shows up and is like, uh, excuse me, no, I definitely have a room. Why don't you kick out a Snapchat star? I have so many viewers, you know, I have so many subscribers on uh, YouTube, blah, blah, blah. So they're like, oh, well, yes, ma'am, actually, we, we will open up this room for you. So they give her a room that they normally keep empty because she's just being so demanding. And it turns out that they keep it empty because it's haunted as shit. Look, it's 75 minutes long. It just, it proceeds at such a clip. It goes so fast. There's something going on in it about something called Link Rabbit, which was like 
I guess, an internet service provider or service that the hotel had at some point in the 80s, like that you could choose things over the phone. Whatever it is, this is a movie that, you know, I definitely wanted to bring up because, Brandon, I think it is very much up your alley. Oh, I'm on the edge of my seat right now. <laughs> it's on Netflix. It's very brief. I give it a mild recommendation, but for you, for most people, but for you, I would give this one a big recommend. <laughs> you want to check that one out. And also, I saw a movie called The Wretched. It's a sort of low-budget horror movie that I really enjoyed. Basically, this uh, kid, this teenage guy, he is sent to like help his dad where his uh, or basically stay with his father for the summer after getting into some trouble back home the kind of trouble that teenagers get into especially when there's like unmonitored access to a uh, a medicine cabinet so it, i guess it, it's at its core it started it seems like it's going to be like life as a house but as it turns out a lot of the houses near where his father lives um sort of like where he gives sailing lessons and swimming lessons and that sort of thing there's uh, a witch that wants to consume children and when they when the witch does consume children it actually erases them from the memories of the family and the household so as these like kids that he's giving like sailing and swimming lessons slowly start to disappear he even tries to like confront the families and they don't know what he's talking about it's not the greatest thing i've ever seen but for like a low budget ifc after midnight kind of movie i really enjoyed it i give it a recommendation and then uh, finally my three big things that i definitely loved that i saw were the 1994 movie death machine great title it is america's darling brad Dourif at his brad durifist it's directed by stephen norrington it was his first feature Uh, Stephen Norrington went on to direct Blade and then League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and then nothing else ever again. Like, (laughs) he only made, like, those three movies. I I guess he might have made something else in the meantime, but nothing that had any kind of, like, cultural penetration. And Death Machine is great. It is so clearly supposed to be aliens, except that it just kind of exists in this next sunday ad tech future where a woman sort of inherits a ceo position at this armaments company and brad dorif is the utterly insane weapons designer that no one has is brave enough to try and fire oh yeah that's a good role for him (laughs) brandon can ring his bell now because there was a, a similar sort of him being crazed on uh voyager voyager Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. If you're going to pay for Brad Dourif, you might as well uh, let him go crazy, you know? Might as well let him off the leash. Brad Dourif is having a hell of a time. Uh, he has, like, razor blade fingers that he, like, wears, you know, and, of course, so does his death machine. It also It also has, like, razor hands, but his entire, like, mad laboratory that nobody else has access to is full of just like toys and pornography just like pinups but also just like he-man shit and masks <laughs> and all of that it's really fun it sort of seems like at first it might not be aware 
of how much fun it can have with this and then just straight up goes for it. I also saw a 1987 film called The Hidden. It's so good. I don't want to get too far into it because I the it and death machine i think i'm going to be doing write-ups of sooner than later but the hidden is uh, from 1987 starring kyle mclaughlin and directed by jack shoulder in which it's clearly kind of aping terminator in the way that there were a lot of post terminator ripoffs where there's like some sort of slasher film it's like a slasher movie but the killer is some sort of fantastical thing right like terminator is a slasher movie where the killer is a a robot from the future right except in this one kyle mclaughlin plays an fbi agent who is hunting down an alien that can move from body to body so each of the people that he's tracking they all exhibit the same behaviors but like nobody's recognizing that it's a pattern of behavior because the person dies at the end of the altercation uh and then of course you slowly come to realize because kyle mclaughlin behaves so oddly that he is also an alien who's like a detective who has possessed kyle mclaughlin's body so (laughs) there's a lot going on to it and i think that it is easily on par with terminator like this is a forgotten gem like it's easily on par with terminator it has a very interesting visual style there's an awful lot of green not really for any particular reason but for green is chosen as sort of um there's lots of green gels and the lights and lots of green cars and green dresses and outfits it's very 80s it's very fun i give it a big recommendation and then I saved this one for last, even though it wasn't the best that I saw, because it reminds me the most of what we're going to talk about tonight. But I watched the 1988 live-action children's adventure film, The New Adventures of Pippi Longstocking. It's apparently going to be leaving Netflix soon, so I was like, oh, I better watch it. Because I had not seen it since I was a child. It was like my neighbors had it on a VHS tape, and I would watch it like at their place before... Like, they moved away when I was, like, seven or eight. I never saw it again. I just remember loving Pippi Longstocking, you know? Because Pippi Longstocking is a character that, like, kids love because she's just a superhuman kid who does what she wants all the time. She has no concerns. She has no problems. She's got a bunch of pirate gold and super strength. And it's very much kind of a wish-fulfillment character for children. And I thought that that was interesting in sort of communication with what we're going to be talking about tonight as our primary film yeah definitely but i am going to quit babbling now uh (laughs) ali what have you been watching so i'm gonna count this as just like a movie because if you watch it all together it's movie length and it is definitely not my first watch but over the garden wall i had a fall in spring time it was great like gorgeous animation the whimsicalness, the tone. It's just great. I don't think you need this podcast to recommend it to you, but if you haven't seen it, you should. I can't think of many other things that I watch like on a yearly basis as like appointment viewing like that. Yeah. Like, every October since it aired, I have I, like I have to watch it as like a ritual. It's amazing. It's so good. But then I had a couple of I guess I've just been doing like a a real spooky time in spring. 
Um, because I had a couple of really important classic horror first time watches. The first one was The Exorcist. I had never seen it. Nice. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And it was on Tubi. I don't think it is anymore. <laughs> thank you, Tubi. That's the bell we need. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Tubi. All hail. But the thing is, you know, I have gotten to it so late and I lived with it built up as like the scariest movie ever made. And then I lived with a bunch of people that were like, oh, you know, it's campy. But really, it's so impressive and shocking for its time. And it's just really good. The whole internal battle of faith versus non-faith versus the actual devil who has attached himself to this child. You know, I'm not usually like one to buy into that whole debate, but I thought it was a really interesting way to frame the story. And to me, in some ways, it felt more like a mystery kind of thriller rather than like a horror because we're really trying to get to the bottom of like this debate. You know, it's more of like a philosophical thing in a lot of ways. It was definitely not as scary as scariest movie ever. Yeah, I do find that movie a little dry too. Like the uh, investigation aspect does sort of like overpower the like supernatural stuff. I'm really into the third one because it kind of gives me what I want out of that series where it just like goes fully into like the dream logic, like possession stuff. And see, The Exorcist does the thing that I always talk about, which is that it starts out where it's like she spends a really long time making sure that there's not like a scientific explanation for what's happening. And I actually don't think that that's a problem, but I can see how it is for other people. Because where I come down to is I want that investigation to end with ambiguity or, oh, maybe it was just something with a scientific explanation. But The Exorcist does go full on like, oh, no, this is a, a straight up evil demon in this little girl's body. I mean, you got to troubleshoot before you go all out, like, <laughs> calling yeah. a priest. Especially, you know, if you have to prove it to call in a priest. I enjoyed it, um, but not as much as my other really important first-time watch, which was Candyman. Ooh, hell yeah. yeah. Which is so good. I mean, I had been hearing how good it was forever, and I just, for some reason, hadn't gotten around to it. Yeah, it is so, so good. I mean, just the visuals, really awesome looking. It's very... Similar in, like, the dreamy tone as, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Like, I got a lot of those sorts of vibes from, like, just Candyman appearing and, like, coming out of a wall. It felt very Freddy Krueger in a lot of ways. And his, like, very, like, dramatic style really sold me. I was like, well, why not just go with him? Like, I mean, look at him. He's got this (laughs) amazing cloak, you know. He's so dramatic. Yeah, the seduction of it. Yeah, like, I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. I mean, you know, obviously the politics of it are really great because a lot of it, I was just, like, sitting there, and I think eventually it does come to critique it. I was just sitting there being like, oh, my gosh, this white lady is just, like, playing tourist in the project. Inviting the cops into the projects yeah. after specifically promising, <laughs> promising not, not to. to. Yeah. Playing tourists in the projects, inviting the cops in, awakening a 
hold evil. You know, she didn't get entirely the comeuppance she deserved, but like, it's more real life in that way. The movie acknowledges um, that she's not a force for good by the end. Yes, <laughs> I exactly. I guess that's the biggest way I could put it without spelling it out. But, yes, 100%. Um, exactly. Yeah, so I really, really enjoyed that, and I can't wait for the new one. Well, I've got a few movies that broadly fall under the rape revenge umbrella, not a genre I particularly appreciate in general terms. I'm only bringing these up because I do enjoy them, and they're not typical rape revenge stories. There's like a kind of you know twist on the genre in them. I've watched Promising Young Woman from last year, which I won't say much about because it's the one I liked the least out of these three. But I will say, I watched the Oscars ceremony um, last week, and I was most excited by that one winning Best Original Screenplay. Because like, I watched the movie that same weekend, and it was like this super stylized, like candy-colored, really femme revenge film. And it does something with the rape-revenge template that I at least appreciated as a conceptual conceit, was that like you don't have to endure the actual assault on screen, which some of my favorite movies in the genre like felt and some other ones like that. That's what I most appreciate is like, you can deal with the fallout without actually having to like suffer the on-screen violence. And I don't think it's necessary to do that. And the other thing is that it's just so hyper stylized. So I, I just really liked that a movie that was like a playfully dark, like funny subversion of that genre won an academy award for best screenplay like it's always a good thing like i'm thinking to like when get out won for best screenplay a few years ago like there were so many other projects like get out that were like immediately funded um and we've been seeing them come out in the past like five years mm-hmm. that i just felt like a good win for like anyone who enjoys like hyper femme genre films uh which is me so i was i was happy about that win but after Promising Young Woman, I wasn't really feeling the catharsis that I wanted from it. I wasn't like fully won over by it, even though it is like a provocation. Like I wanted to be kind of rattled. So I went back and watched the movie Teeth from 2007, that same night. And I kind of remembered that being more of a edgelordy, upsetting experience than what I got revisiting it. Actually, partly the reason I watched it is because I own it on DVD, and I was like, do I need to hold on to this? Is there any reason to watch this movie ever again? If you don't know the concept of teeth, it's a coming-of-age story about a teenager starting to come into her own sexually, and she is struggling with that because she has teeth in her vagina. Um, And it's explained as like a mutation, like an evolutionary mutation uh, that's like protecting her from all of the predators in her life, which is basically every boy in her social circle, people in her house, outside her house, just yeah. everywhere she goes, yeah. people are trying to take advantage of her. And this is her body protecting itself. So there's a little bit of that like pubescent body horror kind of stuff. Um, I'm thinking of like ginger snaps or Jennifer's body. There's like transformative power through what initially seems horrific kind of transformation stories. And what I had remembered about this movie was all of that stuff. Like, I remembered the actual sexual assault stuff being very difficult to stomach. I remember there being some, like, edgelord humor about, like, vagina dentata being this sort of, like, punchline in the film. And revisiting it, what really shocked me 
first of all, it's very good and holds up, which you would not expect from a Dimension Extreme film from the 2000s <laughs> with that concept. Like, you would think it would be, like, insufferable. But it's also, like, a satirical comedy about Christian evangelical sex education and, like, abstinence training for teenagers. Yeah. It's a lot like Saved, which is a movie I love from that era. And I just completely forgotten about that line of humor. I think Boomer, too, like you specifically might enjoy that satirical humor side. I don't know if you remember that strain of like the movie. It, there's a lot of it. I, I don't know how that completely just evaporated from my brain. Maybe I just like consolidated all that with what's going on in Saved. But they're like kind of spiritually similar films. Yeah, I understand that saved came out in i want to say like 2003 or 2004 and i remember not finding saved to be as like informative or instructive in the way that teeth is saved presents the accuracy of growing up in that environment but it exaggerates it for comedic effect when really it should be exaggerated for horrific effect the jesus camp approach yeah (laughs) and Teeth came out right after I had just watched Jesus Camp for the first time and kind of was like, oh boy, I grew up real fucked up, didn't I? Yeah, I couldn't finish watching Jesus Camp. I was like, oh no. Oh, the world's greatest movie villain is the lady who runs that camp. Oh my God. Well, I will mention one more, a recent one, like one that came out this year and it's on Shudder and it it is probably like my favorite film I've seen so far this year. It's up there anyway. Uh, It's called The Power. Um, It's set in 1974 in Britain, and it's about this woman. Actually, I could probably describe this movie for, like, a good five minutes and make it sound exactly like St. Maud. Um, It's about this, like, sexually repressed nurse who has, like, a mysterious past, and people keep alluding to, like, the darkness that she's, like, left behind as she takes on this new job. And um, she is being, like, bodily possessed in the hospital as, like, these, like, religious zealot out of body experiences so it it has like kind of like the broader strokes of like saint Maud, but it's more straightforward as like a horror film and what the body possession stuff ends up doing is playing with the broader structure of a rape revenge tale as well it's a lot about power structures allowing sexual assault to go on unchecked and linking that to body possession horror films and how your body being taken over by another entity, like beyond your control, like that horror is connected to the uh, like systemic like abuse that the movie is like dealing with as well. And it's just like a really tight, upsetting horror film, really well acted, small cast. The hospital setting is mostly dark because it's set during these like power outages so it's like a hospital at night that's like run on generators. Yeah, spooky setting. Basically anybody who thought St. Maud was like not satisfying enough as a horror film, this one's like very straightforward in its like uh, themes and its payoffs in that way. But I think both movies are good. Um, and this one just happens to be a Shudder type film. Like it is, it is like straight up a ghost story um, and not apologetic about that at all. So anyway, this is a subject I usually avoid in watching movies. Like if I hear it's about that, I'm usually like too squeamish to watch them. But uh, the power in teeth, particularly, like I would recommend.
exactly like seals with an exception that they can turn into humans which are of course very beautiful humans by taking off their seal skin as if taking off a costume. Then once they turn into humans, they would dance, play, or bask under the moonlight or sun at outlying scaries and shores, just like how most humans would do at the beach, but they would all be naked. This conversation is kind of rounding out a trilogy of children's fantasy films, which is like what we've been doing the last few of these Lanyap episodes. My contribution to that discussion is The Secret of Rowan Inish from 1994. It's a film I saw for the first time early this year. Around the time I was watching Francis Hodgson Burnett adaptations, I watched like The Secret Garden and A Little Princess and this movie all in like the same week. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they all have kind of a similar vibe, right? And I would kind of describe that as gently magical. <laughs> They're like quietly magical little worlds where these little children with tough attitudes, uh, like real tough kids keep a little secret world to themselves. There's also like kids talk to animals in all three of those movies. There's a fun little trope that they all share. In this case, the uh, tough little girl protagonist is practically orphaned at the start of the film. Her mother dies. We started the mother's funeral and the father is super depressed about that and basically just takes to the pub. This is an Irish setting and it is steeped in Irish folklore. She goes to live with her grandparents for a while while the um, father is just sort of like getting his shit back together. And her grandparents live close to this island called Rowan Inish. And that's where her family's from and where they moved from when she was small. I believe the film is set in the 1940s. So this is like post-World War II. Everyone left the island to seek jobs, more or less. There's like job opportunities for this like small Irish community who like left their homeland And as she gets closer to the island, she starts to hear more folk tales and, like, pass down lore among her family. And these, like, sort of, like, fairy tale things mostly involve these seals. They're magical creatures. They're called selkies. It's sort of like mermaids, where uh, the beautiful seals um, can shed their skin and there's, like, a woman inside. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, it's teased out as the movie goes on that um, in her family line in the past, one of her ancestors stole a Selkie's skin. Like the Selkie like took off her like seal skin to like bathe uh, and enjoy the sunshine. And because this uh, man took her skin, she was sort of like instantly attached to him and they became like a married couple and had children. And, one day she got her skin back and rejoined the seals and left behind a mixed family line of like half Selkie, half human hybrids. Um, And that's who this little girl is descended from. She also has a little brother who's gone missing named Jamie. Jamie has been sailing the waters around Rowan Inish in this little like boat cradle that when their family decided to leave the island, uh, the seals were like, no fucking way are you taking our like, joint descendant like someone from our branch of the family is not coming back with you to the mainland he's going to stay in Rowan Inish so he's just been hanging out with the seals and the seagulls and to win Jamie back um, from the the selkies this little girl and her cousin have this like secret 
project to rebuild Rowan Innish to its former glory. They like fix up the little houses and put a fresh coat of paint on everything and sweep up. And this movie made me like surprisingly emotional the few times I've seen it since January. More and more every time I watch it, actually, I tear up, uh, especially at the end when all of a sudden people start to believe her. She like convinces her grandparents, no, Jamie is still out there. These like Selkies are, you know, protecting him until we go back to Rowan Inish and then he will rejoin the family because that's where we're supposed to be. And the Selkies won't let him like leave that home behind the way the rest of us have left it. So that part hits me emotionally. Also, um, there's a very specific fantasy aspect I want to touch on later as we get into the film. But in a broad sense, one of the reasons I wanted to introduce this to Boomer, not only do I think that you, you know, are fond of this genre in a way that it's touching on, but also it's directed by John Sayles, who is a uh, creative mind that we have been not able to pinpoint like what his deal is yet, I don't think. Like... He wrote Alligator, and he wrote and directed Passion Fish, which are two former Movie of the Month selections for us. And as a trilogy with this film, I don't get him as a like auteur at all. So I, maybe that's a good place to start. What do you think of this as like a John Sayles film? It's a good question. When we talk about John Sayles, we normally do talk about uh, Passion Fish, which for the uninitiated is like a woman on the verge film in which Mary McDonnell was a soap opera actress who was forced to return to her like childhood hometown where she is like the last of her family. She's been paralyzed from the waist down and she generally like is unnursable. Like caretakers cannot stand her until Alfred Woodard comes along and the two of them have like a strong bond and they end up becoming friends and it's great. It's it's like a mom movie, but like I love it. It's wonderful. And then the other thing that I saw with him most recently was Silver City, which was a 2004 political satire that is very much of the year 2004. But his other movies <laughs> before Passion Fish were largely more political, like Silver City. Eight Men Out, which I don't really care that much for, because it's a sports movie but it's about like i guess like the 1918 1919 world series and like one team took a payoff to like throw the game for gambling reasons but also the brother from another planet which is one that uh people don't really talk about a lot but he directed that and it starred uh joe morton who was in um, what we just recently watched for movie of the month trouble in mind he plays the gangster that the Caradine character sort of falls under the wing of. But if you look at the other things that he wrote, but not necessarily directed, he did write an early draft for E.T. And he also wrote The Howling. So The Howling is kind of about a human fantastical creature shape-shifting connection, right? Uh, that is the exact thing I wanted to touch on was that movie specifically. <laughs> so we hit that way earlier than I expected. Okay. I also didn't know he had anything to do with that, so that's shocking to me. Well, and E.T. is a it, it shares even more resonance, I think, because E.T. is about a young child who is, without at least one parent, feels their absence pretty strongly 
and then forms like a relationship with a being that is not like itself like uh, our character here and the seal that she names Jax or whose name she just realizes is Jax. Yeah, she has like a very intuitive relationship with those seals where she's like kind of negotiating terms with like bringing Jamie back into the fold. Yeah. But she doesn't actually like hear them talk or anything like that. She just knows. Yeah, I think that's part of the lineage there. Yeah. I think we're just supposed to know that she has seal powers. <laughs> and that's part of like the child wish fulfillment fantasy too cuz like when you have a book in which a character like a children's book or a children's story in which a character talks to animals once a child is above a certain age like six or seven at the latest they know that that's like a fantastical element but kids can convince themselves that they intuitively know things about animals for a lot longer than that you know that they have like a correspondence or a communication with animals that like transcends language, which I guess for some people might be true, uh, not to insult anyone, but you know, that extends that fantasy a little further in the sense that she doesn't say, Oh, he told me his name is Jax, which is like inherently immediately identifiable as being like a tall tale, but his name is Jax. I, I just know. (laughs) Was there a particular John Salesness that you felt was present here? Well, I do want to talk about that um, howling connection because, you know, this isn't really my kind of movie. I, I really did love those two, especially The Secret Garden. Like, I really loved that film. Um, and this felt like just in line with that. But I wouldn't say typically this is the kind of movie I would bring up on the show. What I really was struck by was the fairy tale sort of flashbacks when she's learning about like the lore of Selkies and you see the Selkie transformation on the screen. Oh, I loved that. It's so good. And it is like exactly the Rick Baker effects of the howling where it's like the Selkie body is like the sleeve that her human body is extending through. It's so cool to see that same werewolf transformation effect applied to a different animal and now i want like every fucking animal a to z transformed (laughs) on screen in a movie with like a human emerging from that skin because i think it looks so cool especially with that wet leather look of the seal skin like leaving the human body i I just love that transformation so much Uh, on top of everything else i love about this movie i I don't want to say that's like the only interesting aspect of it but that that's one of the things that really stuck out to me the selkie that's actually like a selkie traditional story yeah. It's traditionally a Scottish folktale, not an Irish one, but specifically a story about a Selkie mother who her child is like, why does father hide a leather coat in the roof? And so as soon as she knows where her skin is, she goes and grabs it and returns to the sea. And that itself shares sort of an interesting sto- uh, parallel with like an Inuit fable that sort of is an origination story for like why there are seals to be hunted. It kind of feels like once you get above a certain latitude, seals become a much more important part of your mythology, especially since the Tad character mentions that in their, or maybe it's the grandfather, mentions that in those days, like they were hunting seals for their flesh and for their oil and for their skins. And that sort of created a pact between them. It has interesting parallels with other world mythologies that I think are kind of fascinating. 
Ali, you have like a history with this film, even though I don't think you've seen it before, right? My mother loves this film. And usually my mom really loves low-budget films from the UK that aren't always my favorite things to watch. Sometimes they're just too saccharine or like straight up boring, you know, just it really runs the gambit. And so she was begging me forever to watch this movie, to watch this movie. And I was like, oh yeah, one day. Like you do when somebody's recommending a movie that you're pretty sure you're not going to (laughs) like. And so when you recommended it, I was like, okay, fine. I'll watch it. And now I know exactly why my mom watches and loves it. And it's all of the folk crafts that are featured in it. Like all of the roof thatching and the rebuilding and the milk paint and everything like that in the movie. She's just enamored with those old folk crafts, which isn't a bad thing, but it really, really explains why she loves this movie so much. Because <laughs> I can just see her watching it and be like, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is more like a this whole the house episode for her than it is like a fantasy film <laughs> oh i mean you know she also just is totally in love with like you said the soft fantasy but also just this part of the world generally but for a lot of this movie it very much feels like the story of reclaiming your lands and being cultural torchbearers like that just seems like the overarching theme of the movie, which I thought was really, really interesting, especially, you know, as far as the Irish are concerned. I mean, like, we all know the Irish have been through a lot. So it was really interesting to me in that way as like, a, these are the crafts of people that they passed down and our parents knew and then we taught them to you sort of movie. I really enjoyed that as a subject matter because There's not a whole lot of victorious, like, reclaiming your birthright land stories. So in that regard, I I really found it, like, incredibly hopeful and and really nice. It was was just a nice, nice little movie. (laughs) There's definitely a way that could tip into, like, conservatism and individualism, too. Yeah. Especially for a movie about white people. Yeah. But um, thinking about it, like, within the politics of, like, Irish labor exploitation... Especially because, well, you know, you see at the beginning all of the factories and, like, the yeah. life she has in the mainland. Yeah, there's nowhere for her to go. She's just sort of, like, walking around these, like, factories where her brothers are working and, like, sitting on a bar stool at the pub while her dad's, like, drinking his, like, grief away. It's, she's just kind of stuck. So, her being out in the open in the sea water, it's a return not to just like your rightful place in the world, but like a simpler, more communal way to live. Mm -hmm. And I was really um, struck when I watched this. I don't know if this is on all versions of the movie, but uh, the the one I watched at the beginning said partially funded by the anarchist convention incorporated in terms of this. I was like, Oh, okay. I guess I will like this movie. Um, <laughs> it's kind of wild, but if you think about it, like the politics are there. That sort of like communal, like simpler living where it's like just about taking care of your immediate circle of people and like actually communicating with nature instead of like working against it. Um, I don't know. It's not very different than like the crass uh, commune or something like that. Like, yeah, yeah. 
and the the seals are like calling the shots too, right? The seals are like showing them how to live properly yeah. <laughs> and like guiding their way, which is kind of great. <laughs> well, I do kind of want to talk about the seals themselves for a while. Like besides that transformation scene, like I do find them sort of mystical to look at. Like I kind of get where that lore might come from. Not only because they have like really kind eyes, they kind of look like pit bulls. It reminds me a lot of my own dog uh, looking at those seals, but also the way the movie like creates the effect of them uh, interacting with the characters feels like creating a unicorn for the screen. Like there's some animatronics in there. There's some like practical handheld kind of puppets and, you know, there's actual trained seals in some of the scenes. It's kind of like a whole grab bag. I was wondering bag. about that. If they were trained <laughs> seals or... Don't tell me that they were animatronics. I don't want to know that. <laughs> I was fascinated by how much, like... I, I imagine that they must have been shooting, like, so much, like, second unit seal footage. Because sometimes yeah, it's just, like... Yeah, that's what I was like, thinking, too. Like, seals popping up out of the water looking around and then popping back down right and then you just have to kind of like kuleshov effect that in with something that your actual actors are doing but i guess the fact that some of them were animatronics is should have been obvious (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't mean to accuse you of killing the magic or anything the fact that they weren't is really impressive i think some of the shots of like jacks on the rocks where he's like there's actual seals around him but he's like looking at her specifically and like I think there's definitely some shots of uh, of robot seals <laughs> mixed in with the actual ones. But, uh, I, I mean, they did a really good job of, like, I don't know, there's that scene where the seal is stopping the little girl from, like, reuniting with her brother. It's, like, helping Jamie escape back to the sea. So uh, the seal does his little belly run to the shore and knocks her over with his fin on the way. And she does one of those, like, three <laughs> stooges, like, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. She, like, falls backwards. There's some really great stuff in there. And any of the, like, puppet stuff, I think, only added to, like, how magical they felt. Like, this movie has a genuine sense of, like, real fantasy for me when I watch it. This is truly magical. Like, this this movie is truly magical. Well, it sounds like this was kind of a hit among the three of us, so maybe we can ride those good vibes. Like, Jamie on his little boat. Oh, he was having such a time. (laughs) He let his hair grow out. Every time she saw him, he was like, oh, nope, gotta run. (laughs) his like constant like no gotta run away from the situation it really amused me i thought that jamie taking off at a run every time he thought he might have to interact with a person was funny as shit yeah same jamie same i also laughed when the seals had to bully him back to his his human (laughs) family a harry and the henderson style like that that whole confrontation is amazing yeah they were like hey we're gonna take the family heirloom back under the sea for a bit we guess and <laughs> uh you don't get to hang out in it anymore you gotta go be with your human family and um <laughs> we'll be here when the next generation comes around <laughs> well if you want to see this movie it's like super widely available it's on amazon prime it's on hoopla canopy Tubi, pluto it's available to watch without a rental fee uh, and I, I think very much worth it. Yeah. If you're some sort of weirdo who listens to this podcast, but is also a parent, watch this with your kids. <laughs> Show them this. I'm going to send this to my mom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to send it to my mom just to be like, I'm so sorry. Well, I'm sorry that I opened the episode talking about teeth in that case. Oh, no. Uh, she'll <laughs> she'll just. Bad. <laughs> she, no, she, she knows. <laughs> she knows what to avoid. <laughs>
Well, Boomer mentioned earlier in the episode uh, briefly that we did Trouble in Mind, an 80s noir film um, featuring Divine out of drag as a mobster character. So at least worth it for that novelty of nothing else. Um, And I will link that conversation in the show notes for this episode. And next week we will be back talking about Hitchcock's Vertigo. Uh, The entire episode will be talking about Vertigo and its various like soft remakes from a bunch of different artsy directors. And I actually have never seen Vertigo before, so that'll be a fun thing to cross off my shame list. All right. Well, we'll see y'all next week for more Hitchcock talk. Good night, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.